Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day-to-day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. This is episode 19, recorded May 26th, 2021. Our guest this week is Raul Mera, the Director of Intelligent Systems at IBI Group, a Toronto-based company that is bringing together companies from many different backgrounds to create smart city solutions around the world. IBI has been doing some fascinating stuff, and Raul will tell us all about it as soon as Grant is done with his news. All right, here is your chance to shine, Grant. What have you got for tech news this time? A little calmer news this week, I think. Um, But I say it every week, I guess, or every uh, session. Um, Okay, Um, voice banking services. Now, um, what you're going to think voice banking is different than what I say is voice banking. Well, let me just say that I have no idea what you're talking about, so go ahead. Oh, good. Oh, that's better then. No, but that's better then, right? So voice banking services, um, uh, essentially, it's where you bank your voice. uh, You download your voice application. Um, into an account, and you get you authenticate it, and then after a while, your voice can be used for all kinds of things through queries with Alexa, Google, and what I wanted to make sure people didn't think it was just banking. But understand something: it does include banking. Okay, so you could use Google Assistant or Alexa or um, any of the um, uh, any of the um, uh, applications. To do things without now it's scary without having to ever pick up and use anything other than your voice. Okay, so I have Google Assistant all over the house, and, and I will say, you know, good morning, and it gives me the news. Yeah. It, it the the uh, camera on the Nest display recognizes me when I walk into the room, says hello, drives you crazy. It does. So what you're saying is that just like my Google Assistant. Yeah. My voice will be on record somewhere. Yes. So that I will be able to direct whatever technology I have to whatever task I need accomplished. Correct. So essentially you go to you bank it with uh with a, a private lender um or in, in the case of banking and once they have your voice you never ever use anything else again. Right. So if I say uh you know hey Google um I just set it off. Uh, you know, transfer a thousand dollars from my savings to my checking. It'll do that. Yep. Send money to Grant, <laughs> which you never do, but I'd like it. No, I understand. I understand. Well, that's kind of cool. Uh, a little, maybe a little creepy at, at some point because you're. Vo- oh yeah. But I don't. I don't think there's going back from this sort of convenience. I mean, if you've got a smart speaker and you're using it to even half its potential, it's pretty sexy. No, I, I think you got to have, it. and and I think that it's going to be the future. Um, I don't think people actually know it's here now. I think probably the biggest issue is people don't know it's here. Basically, so it's not just voice activation for you know uh, components around the house. It's vo- oh no no no. It's a so so I don't know if you know. I see the IC. I don't know. They call it ICICI Bank, right? Which is a private bank. And it has launched this, and you can go in there and log in and set up your bank accounts and do your factor authorization. And then they send you secure stuff through an SMS or your mobile phone, and off you're running. Right. So it's, it's voice activation for anything. Yep. 
Yeah, I think it's good. All right. I think I don't think I don't know. I don't think I'm surprised. Well, no, it's it's just a matter of making this technology widely available to all these different industries. Yeah, yeah, and it'll come like everything else. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, the second part news is is uh, again very straightforward, very interesting though, in that as you know, for years we've talked about fossil fuels, how we can take, you know food, garbage, and turn it into fuel. Right. And nothing new. So the newest thing now is turning vegetables and all your types of eatables, uh, vegetables, cabbage, carrots, and turn it into, you're going to love this, into concrete. Concrete? I know you like that. Part. Yeah, literally, it's out now. Um, so they're working now on what they call compression, heat pressing technique, which is what they used for other stuff. And it compresses all this into a powder and then becomes a construction material. And instead of uh, using wood and all the other things to compress it for building materials, they're using vacuum dried, pulverized food waste items, onion, fruit peels, cabbage. And what they do is they mix the food powder with water and, and seasoning. I'm not, I'm not la- laughing at this. And then they press the mixture into the mold, and you have construction materials. How strong is this stuff? Oh, stronger than concrete. It's stronger than concrete. Yes. So this is. <laughs> so, so this is this is this is road paving. Real. Road paving. This is construction. Well, this it's is more for, it's more for construction. Okay. Okay, but um, and I think I don't think anyone knows this. I don't think a lot of people know. And this was done through the uh, University of Tokyo. That's where they found all this. And they were using pressed cabbage and fruit fruit peels. And um, so the, the handsome Gretel fairy tale uh, may be a little more than you think. Interesting. <laughs> I think it is. I, I, I uh, did not know that until I decided to read about it. And I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, the more we the more we can repurpose our garbage, the better it is. I mean, we have several airlines talking about how they're using sustainable fuel uh, as a replacement for old school kerosene in their in their fleets. So, Correct. so something like this, where you take what would be well, it's it's not useful for anything but maybe feeding to farm animals. You turn it into construction material, which in well, turn- think of it, Alan. I mean, you know, and again, let's talk about environment. <laughs> Using the ground that we live on to build houses, it's amazing, actually. So, I mean, I'm not saying that it's amazing because I'm green. I am green, but that's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it's amazing simply because it's amazing. But the ad, ad that it's green is pretty incredible. I, I just think it's neat that we'd be able to soon live in vegan houses. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good answer, actually. Good answer. I don't think you can eat your house. You probably break your teeth. No, no, but it would be. Hey, if you're if you're hard, if you're hardcore vegan, I mean, you can say that your house is vegan. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Anything else? Sure. Um, so this is kind of interesting. So we always somehow get into neuroscience when we talk. Yeah. And um, the newest thing I've been reading about, I've been reading it for a while, but because we know it goes back to the Stephen Hawking days. But um, neuro neuroscience have now have the ability to. Um, to translate signals um, uh, of your mind to text. Okay. I did read something about okay. this. It's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. So so they can do, a paralyzed man can text at a rate of 90 characters per minute. 90 characters. 
per minute, per minute. All right. Text to you, to you, to you, Alan. So if I'm talking to you with my mind, I can send you 90 characters per minute. Okay. So you're looking at, you know, 10 to 15 words per minute, which is pretty good. Okay. You're amazing. It's about 16 words a minute. Okay. So, and so that's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. Um, that's amazing. Um, think of it, Alan. Um, think of not just the people of where you can take this with your mind. Let's take the mind and move it away from it and say, wow, the mind is going to start doing everything. Yes. But think about how it's going to help the people with diseases who can't speak, who can't speak, who can't communicate properly because they have maybe cerebral palsy or they, or they just grow in the speech impediments. That's gone. Now, you know what's going to happen next. They're going to take the text into voice. Right. Like with Stephen Hawking, he had a keyboard that he had to actually activate with. Uh, but he, he started all. Yeah. He started all. And I think it's, you can say that's where it came from. And the way I read this, I follow uh, a group called BrainGate. And that's a collaboration of a whole bunch of uh, people who uh, work on on this type of thing. And it's it's all about cognitive signals right with associated with handwriting now i think that will change in other words what i'm saying is um the brain signals using thoughts which is still amazing alan think of it do we ever think we'd say this no using thoughts to translate to speech i realize it's texted speech but it is speech and you know and i know going from text speech to go back to google or or alexia is easy Okay, not easy, but it's going to be easy. Come on. Right. So soon a person can, well, I'm thinking this, forget the text part. I get that's where they're now. I'm looking at you, and instead of me thinking it, I have a voice box that's saying it. And I would imagine as processing power uh, increases, you'll be able to increase that speed of 16 words per minute. Well, I assume that's a that's a given. It's not, but I assume it's a given. And you're right, and that's what I'm thinking. But you're you're like me. When I read this, I'm thinking this is like one of the coolest things ever. Particularly if you've ever been involved in any type of charities, like I am, uh, where speech is an issue, the mind isn't. Um, I've dealt with people with kids in wheelchairs that have car accidents that have a tube in their throat, right, and can can, can talk. Once in a while, this this truly is inventive in that. Think of the things that you can fix with people who have psychological or issues that they can't communicate, versus people who just want to communicate better. It's just all good. Let Let me throw this at you. You've got somebody in a hospital bed who apparently is in a persistent vegetative state, but they may not be. You got it. Oh my God. I mean, it's exactly what I'm thinking too. Um, I really think. This is much more game-breaking than people are going to read this. If I was to read this, I would say, wow, think of this. And it is amazing on its own. But I always try to think, okay, 10 years from now. Oh, by the way, when I say 10 years from now, Alan, it's probably two years from now. But let's say 10 years from now. This is really cool. You're right. You're dead on. Uh, You're dead on. Well, this, this is an example of what I read a little while ago about how people were saying that we're in a new industrial revolution. And things are evolving and iterating faster than they've ever had in human history. The the leaps in technology, the leaps in capabilities are, you know, going at a thousand miles an hour. So you're right. Yeah. In 10 years or in two years, we'll probably have accomplished what we thought would take 10. Which is still really fast, by the way, which would be incredible. Has took a thousand years. Right. So, I mean, um, 
and that's where we're going with everything. And I'm sure over we, as we proceed on to future podcasts, we're going to keep hearing all this stuff that we're back to what I said before. Soon, the body will not die. <laughs> uh, that's how I view things. So, Raul Mera is the director of intelligent systems at IBI Group. He and the company are based in Toronto and have been engaged in some amazing smart city projects around the planet. We found him working at home. Okay, we, we need to begin at the beginning. So we'll explain what the IBI group is all about. So IBI has been around for over 40 years. You know, we're probably best known as an engineering and architectural firm. The I, the B, and the I actually have a meaning. Uh, it actually originated way back as a gentleman named Erwin and Beinhacker and a, and a set of people. But when we evolved in our practice areas, we really came together with three, three key themes. We were in intelligence. We're in buildings or in infrastructure. And we work together within those three groups to make kind of the best outcome for cities and communities. So when you're doing architecture work or you're doing uh, related activities around the area, we're doing all three of those things. We're looking at what are some intelligent systems that we can deliver for those projects uh, and then what can be done from an infrastructure perspective, and what can make the best outcome for the people living in those communities. And this is an international operation, isn't it? You you work all over the world. That's right. So we have over 60 offices throughout the world, about 3,000 employees. We're rated, I think we're fifth largest architectural firm in the world. Uh, I think we're the top architecture firm in numbers uh, in Canada, and we're headquartered in Toronto. So over the the past... Oh, half a decade or so. You've been working with government agencies global. You, you're very big into the smart city idea and the initiatives that go along with this. Uh, you did something in India. Can you explain that? Yeah, we, we've been working in India for quite a while, but India was a really good starting point for our smart cities practice. Early in the 2010s, 2015 type timeframe, a lot of countries were actually looking at smart cities a lot closer and they started doing smart city challenges. And when they were doing the smart city challenges, they were asking for cities within their country to come together and propose a solution to how they would advance their community. And we actually helped a, a city in India known, uh, named Bhubaneswar to prepare their proposal for that competition, which had over 100 cities in India to compete. And fortunately, that was the number one proposal in that competition. And then moving forward, we helped deploy that and implement this solution that was put forward in that proposal. So this is across, um, what, transportation, energy, uh, sewer and water, anything else? Yeah, it was cutting across everything. We really wanted to, smart cities became the theme that it wasn't just about mobility and how people were moving. It was how they were living within the community. And so right away, we noticed that the different sectors weren't necessarily always communicating with each other. So energy, water, um, um, transportation services, waste management, they had all grown up in a particular way. They had all the skills and the, and the capabilities within their own sector, but they weren't really looking for opportunities to collaborate. And the outreach to the community wasn't always the same as well. So what we had worked with them is we looked at building an, sort of a knowledge center where all these sectors could talk to each other, look for opportunities that they could uh, better engage the community. And one thing that we really thought was a, a, a good standout was giving some empowerment to the citizens. So an app was developed 
It reached the citizens to give them sort of the, a say in where they're seeing issues within their own city and then communicating back to this group of sector leads that could then collaborate on a solution for those issues. Okay, let, let's start with the communication between the various government agencies or city departments. I mean, you're dealing with a tremendous amount of bureaucracy there where, where, and turf wars where people have their own ways of doing things and their own visions of what they need to do or what they want to do. They want to protect their turf. How did you break those silos down? It was difficult at first because you're right. There's a lot of bureaucracy. Each agency is trying to do things in a particular way. We established a knowledge center. Now explain explain that. What is was that, the knowledge? Is, is the knowledge center like a dashboard that comes in that everyone shares? Um, what exactly do you mean by knowledge center? Well, it was to bring in all the information that they had about their community into yes, into a dashboard. It dashboard. was a dig, yeah, a digital utility that they could work together on and have a common understanding of certain topics and certain challenges. And then that dashboard and the information sets were also then rolled into a centralized operation center where they could understand what was going on in, in more real time with their community. Now, this is five years ago. So was, was this the launch of your division? Um, not launch, but the kick, the kickstart to wanting to be the leader in smart city infrastructure, um, consultant management, um, driving that force? It was, yeah, I would say in a way it helped motivate the, the community, the, the pretty active conversation that was happening at the time. Cause we had already been in all the various sectors providing intelligence services, uh, either design or solutions for these various sectors. But this, this con- conversation around smart cities had started to really become at the forefront. A lot of activity was happening in Toronto, throughout Canada. And actually, Canada had initiated its own Smart Cities Challenge, and we started to help help communities uh, throughout Canada. And we had helped uh, participated in proposals with Vancouver um, throughout the country. We we're looking at different cities to support, and so we looked at building this as a as a one a practice area, but we also created a solution. We actually built going to the focus on a dashboard and a product we created something called a smart city platform and it was to bring in all that information into a singular product, a software product. And we actually created that and started to deploy that. So in other cities in, in leveraging our success in India, we actually started to deploy that smart city platform for other cities in India, really bringing in very discrete, normally separate data sets, but allowing them to be aligned. One was one interesting one I'll raise is, um, Actually, in the, in the city of Waterloo, we did a very quick exercise for them where we brought in a lot of open data on uh, cycling and pedestrian statistics that they were gathering from sensors and to see how that correlated with where they were seeing the most accidents. And if they could be drawing from that information as to how to better introduce new bike lanes or new uh, active transportation initiatives. Let's talk about the app that allows for citizen participation. How does how is that deployed and what sort of information is harvested from that? So it's essentially like a crowdsourcing utility. You're you're gonna give the power to the citizen to go out, you know, take a shot of a pothole, uh, make a ticket from that that goes to the government agencies. The people can up 
I guess, a, you know, you sort of upvote it as to being an issue. And then that issue then gets raised into the public sector participants to address. But you can also track it to conclusion. You can see the status of that issue and start to give a, an understanding that it's been resolved. Where, you know, if you call up uh, certain government agencies, make a ticket or make a complaint, you kind of felt like it went into a black hole. This was an opportunity to see the ticket created on your app and track through, conclusion, through the conclusion. Well, but, but, but at the same time, Raul, it's still, it's a lot of uh, government involvement. It's a lot of uh, trust. Um, because as you know, I mean, I can do all those things and even send it to the, to the city. Uh, it doesn't mean they're going to do anything. And so I think where it can fall short is the buy-in by the municipal groups that are running this thing, that they're actually going to take that advice and do something with it. Exactly. You wanted to see that something was happening. you know. And the, some of those smaller issues may get overlooked in the bigger scale that the governments are dealing with. And so giving it in the hands of the citizens was a really good exercise. And, and they gave it a great name to, you know, my city, my pride. And to really empower the, the community to say, well, I, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of the, the cleanup of my city, part of the evolution of my city. One of my favorite columns in the Toronto Star is called The Fixer. And what happens is people write into the paper saying, hey, there's a, a, a utility pole in the wrong place. Or they haven't cleaned up this um, construction site properly. Or there's a, a pothole or a, a dangerous sidewalk. and the newspaper columnist follows up on it and then reports on what happens in the end. So what you've done is, is basically made a, um, a thousand a direct, fixers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A direct connection between the public and, and the people who are responsible for fixing these. Which things. you have to have, but, but you could go the other way, guys, like where I live, we've had a um, person killed from a car accident. We have a fully intelligent system here with sensors and all that. And they've done nothing. And so, uh, my point being is um, you can put in all this really cool technology with the app, but it doesn't drive the solution. If the people in the other end are not following the solution or don't, I don't want to say don't care, maybe aren't motivated, um, it becomes a real backlog for everybody. And that's the concern I've always had with uh, when we do these things. So it's so important to have buy-in, not by the people. You'll get buy-in by the people, buy-in by the people on top. That are really interesting. Right. Yeah, you, you can't deploy an app like this and hope that the public won't follow up on what you're doing. Yes, exactly. And you don't want to create a bunch of noise that's there and at the public sector. Yeah. It's just more noise. It just yeah. becomes more noise. You'll need an app for that one. So, um, <laughs> hey, good idea. No. There was a lot of success in India, though. No, no. I mean, it sounds to me, and what I'm amazed about India is, you know, and, and being such a large country, allocating the investment of time and money to implement something like this is a big deal. And India is, a, is, is not known for its easy to penetrate bureaucracy. Exactly. Yes. Well, it's, I was trying to be even nicer than that. There you go. <laughs> and to be fair, in talking to my Indian colleagues, you know, I've been working with them for a long time. And India had actually stepped up pretty strongly in the smart cities uh, yeah. focus area. They really pushed put a lot of effort in it, put a lot of money towards it. So these challenges were tacked with uh, or accompanying with a bunch of funding that would come through. Well, in actual fact, most countries that 
put time into it, usually are the ones that have no choice. No right. disrespect for them, but um, they're in a corner where we're not. We want, and you know, whether it be Toronto or we don't want to be in the corner. We don't want to wait to be in a corner. And so my hope is companies like uh, IBI Group are out there uh, pushing or or, or uh, promoting or instituting such uh, pro- programs here. We only have to be in that position to have to adapt quickly. And it can be whether it's pollution, overcrowding, violence. It doesn't matter. The point right. is the countries that adapt first usually are the ones that have, have to. Right. And India, obviously, I think has to. And we're seeing that with the pandemic now as well. The adaption to help them in so many ways and infrastructures is a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the coffee shop and the donut shop. Yeah, that's a great one. So uh, when we were really getting into sort of data analytics and understanding, well, where can you start to draw inferences or correlations between different data sets? We'd heard this story from uh, a technology provider of ours who was working with a a very big name in the sort of coffee and donut area, and I I can't name (laughs) the company. So they were looking for the best corner in Manhattan to set up their new office or the new shop. And, you know, at the time, this was maybe about six, seven years ago, there wasn't a prevalence to much of getting those data analytics of where people congregated in the corners. That wasn't available yet. Not to their knowledge, at least for the, for the time being. So somebody had the idea of saying, well, why don't we look at some crime statistics? And they started to look through crime statistics and they, they started to correlate pickpocketing with sales and revenue of existing shops within the region. And they found a direct correlation that high incidence of pickpocketing actually led to locations at high revenue. And that was because that's where the pedestrian traffic was. That's where people were walking by the shop. And that's where they ultimately decided on their new location was based on the highest prevalence of pickpocketing. Wow. Uh, that's something. <laughs> Make, no, it, it's a big stress, but brilliant. Um, Talk about using data and really understanding the data. So, I mean, you could argue that another thing, Rel, is you can collect all the data you want, but if you don't interpret it the way you you need to, it's useless. Exactly. You know, and what you guys, what happened here was amazing. You you took it to the, you see what people don't understand when they get involved in companies like this is when you say we're collecting data, they all go, like, and if you can go to any survey guys, I bet you 80% 80% of the presidents of corporations don't even know what their data does for them. So, I mean, you get companies coming to really, you know, dial in deep or, or drill into it. You can, it's amazing what comes out of it. And using, you know, technology to do it even makes it easier. So, was this location successful? Yeah, in the end, it was a successful location. It was, it was, it correlated well, again, at the time with no sensor data available of where people were walking around, no sensor activity on pedestrian traffic. But inherently, the street smarts of the, of the pickpocketers is to target where people walk the most and where it gets congregated so much where they'll naturally then go and get a coffee or a donut. So that, that was a successful location. That's just amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll confer, I'll confer with that a bit because I just, you know, being in the house all the time, I watched on YouTube a story on pickpocketing. And they talked all about where they pickpocket. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious, guys, how big it is and their crime syndicates and the busy areas are the key and where they get off subway stations, where people get off high traffic. And you don't even need data. It's just, 
I mean, it's data, but it's all manual data. Let's talk about the sandbox story. What, uh, what is sandbox? So the sandbox came together partly out of our smart cities work where we were starting to see silos that were breaking down within agencies. And we saw, you know, we started to think about it ourselves. Well, we're a big company. There's other big companies that we're working with through, you know, big contracts. You know, we work with, uh, say, Ellis Dawn on big contracts and we work with, you know, um, Ontario Power Generation for some of our work. And there was some correlations. They had innovation groups themselves that were doing different things on trying to better do smart cities activities and, and work on empowering their, their groups and their, their ideas. So we, we worked together. We came together as a partnership and we created the sandbox in about 2018. And at first it was IBI with Ontario, Ontario Power Generation. We tied in the Ontario Center of Innovation, which was previously called Ontario Centers of Excellence. And the Weather Network, Slate Asset Management, Ellis Dawn, and then recently we uh, just brought in Multiplex Construction. So it's a joint group of public and private sector partners that are coming together on common ideas around smart cities to really work together and actually find those innovators in that area. Uh, one in particular that you've actually interviewed recently on your podcast was Switch. So a couple of us have actually invested in Switch and are working together with Switch and our partners to find opportunities to start to deploy uh, Switch's technology. Yeah, which we're doing at several sites right now, so it's great. So you you have a center, like a physical headquarters for this, and and that's where people come together and, and work? Well, that's interesting. So yes, uh, initially we started to work as partners together just on ideas and, and meet up in our respective office places. And an idea came together from our CEO at IBI that said, you know what, we really need a collaboration space that can really drive home what we're trying to do with respect to technology and innovation. So he took it upon himself and, and uh, actually through the IBI group design interior, interior design team, we created a space at 55 St. Clair, uh, Young and St. Clair, which is the Smart City Sandbox. It is a physical space. Now, granted, it came together physically and we were going to do our grand opening in early 2020. And then, of course, uh, the pandemic hit. We put that on pause. But the sandbox, has a, uh, the momentum was there. We had a, a beautiful brand new space, one that people could collaborate in, but we couldn't open the doors because of the pandemic. So, our- so when, you say, when you say collaborate, Raul, do you mean um, not just the groups that you've now brought in as partners, but invite other groups to come in. Um, I, I mean, I saw the, the video on that on your space. It's, it's, it's fantastic because it has that great feeling of collaboration and inventiveness and all the things you want to have in a, in a, in a technical um, smart city space. But um, what do you mean by collaborate? So we wanted, yeah, we would invite definitely the partners, uh, something known as design, sorry, design charrettes, would be orchestrated within the space so that people could work on a particular idea together, but really to start inviting the innovators to the space, to start using the space, meet up with the partners to start thinking through what are some market areas that say the likes of a switch could start to uh, work on, but also to start um, working together on pilot initiatives that these new innovators and these new companies could look at developing and maybe they could set up a small lab within the space have their their solutions available for people to come in and see 
But just to have those uh, pomp and circumstance type interactions where the innovators are there, these larger companies and their innovation teams are kind of coming together and they're trying to meet up, you know, at the, yeah, the fancy coffee station. We actually had a, a keg set up. So every Thursday we would have. Okay, I'll could, come Thursdays. <laughs> people could come have a drink. So, yeah, you really want to get people colliding and, and having that, those innovation ideas come together. So it's, it's an idea incubator. Yeah, it's, it's essentially, yes. Idea incubator with people who are, who are ready for market ideas that then the bigger players like IBI, Elliston, Multiplex can really interact with them and either use them within their own work or bring them to the markets that they're in. Yeah, because obviously you guys give them the boost much quicker than uh, the little guy starting out on his own. And That's right. So, I mean, it makes total sense what you're doing. Now, it's, it's early days. Has anything come from that yet? Well, we because we had to put it on hold physically, what we ended up doing is we had to pivot. And we created a digital twin of the space. And by, you know, that was another evolution within our own uh, capabilities as IBI was to really pivot towards technology. And we wanted to use the sandbox as that collaboration tool with the physical space. But again, it had um, had to put on hold. The digital twin we created is what we term a digital engagement venue. So it's a 3D online experience where you can go in and, and navigate the space. But now when we hold events, we're actually highlighting and, and promoting the, the individuals within that 3D space instead of a primer. But we also in, incorporated plugins that allow for uh, online networking. So during this phase of COVID, people can go on, get an idea of kind of the talk that's about to happen. They can engage in the live talk that might be a webinar or something. But they can actually go to what we call an online networking tool and actually go and navigate like as if they're in a conference center. So um, have you guys see a time soon where you're getting back in or do you know? I know we're all guessing, but do you have a timeline in your mind? Well, what we're thinking of doing is as we move through the summer, we have an event that we're planning called the Future of Work. We're going to incorporate our partner Slate. You know, they manage a lot of buildings. We're going to look for those that, you know, are the landlords in the city, those are the brokers and those are the clients, you know, who are those people using office space throughout Toronto and, and say across Canada and the United States? What are their needs and what are they thinking now that the pandemic's hit and their, their staff are starting to rethink their, where they're going to work? So we're looking to plan that out. And one of the things we thought about was a really good way to leverage both the uh, physical sandbox and the hybrid and the digital experience is to do a hybrid event where we'll maybe have a few people in the sandbox physically, but we can engage the actual event with remote participants. Let's talk about sustainability. This is a big deal these days and getting bigger. Wow. So it's a good buzzword. You, well, it is. I mean, the whole ESG investment business, and there's just so much going on. So with everybody working together and, and cities being designed to get smarter, Everybody wants sustainability and care for the environment. Where, where are you on this sort of thing? So we see that now it's, it's, the, it's the right place to be because it's the right goals and objectives that I think the people want. We, we see it as you, you're not, the technology is, is a facilitator as to growing the, the intelligence of your, your community, but the desired outcomes is to really be 
more resilient to the environment and more sustainable overall. So a few initiatives that we see in this area that have been, you know, coming to the forefront and that we're actually fairly active in is one net zero buildings. So net zero would be, you know, the energy that it creates is equal to the energy that it generates through uh, sustainable means, say as uh, solar panels or wind energy, or even uh, more interesting. And we actually have a project for the University of Toronto and its Scarborough campus where their whole uh, student residence of approximately 750 beds will be a passive house design. And that passive house solution will, the, the goal is to really use design techniques, maybe coupled with a bit of technology that ensures that the entire structure in the building doesn't actually need that much energy. It doesn't really produce a requirement because of the way that it's designed. So let's go to sustainability even more so though. Um because I think that technology only gives you, well, it gives you a lot. But at the same time, I always view it as trust. For people to accept all this information, um, you can do all the technology you want. And, and, and for example, your uh, sandbox. Um, how do you build the trust that people are going to use, adapt? Because there's a lot to ask them to do, which... I think in Canada, we're all quite open, not everyone everywhere. Uh, we don't riot when we're told to do something. Um, but how do you build that trust? It's a big one. It's the biggest thing of the whole thing. Yeah, you need a lot of community engagement. You know, part of the Smart City platform I mentioned earlier, we actually, in a, you know, leveraging our experience in India, we created a citizen engagement app. And part of it was, you know, and I see this in Toronto often, there's a lot of projects on the go. And there's a lot of backlash from the community at times that, you know, this maybe, you know, a typical phrase, not in my backyard, or if you're going to do it, I really want to understand how are you going to impact me and my daily commute or impact me with where I live? And, you know, is there any long-term effects of these changes? Like, how, do, how does this affect me? So really engaging the community is key, getting their feedback, getting their understanding, but trying to make a practical assessment of the, all the things in play. And well, the, some and, big guys have failed at that. Yeah, something. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, we won't say names because that's not nice. But the fact is, um, there was a big failure, and that uh, the big shot came in and said, "I own the world, and here's how it's going to be," and thought they they could just do it, and that's not how it works. And um, unfortunately, um, I guess when you have unlimited money, you can just shut up, close up shop. But um, if you have people who are invested in the um, the future and invested in the in the um, the the final solution, it works much better. Exactly. Yeah, getting that say, getting their input, really rationalizing it. You know, in Toronto, you're looking at affordable housing. In addition to sustainability, you're looking for affordable housing goals. You know, ensuring the right mobility for all the people, and not just doing technology for technology's sake. No, I think that's the key right there is uh, everyone thinks it solves your problem. No, it provides you with the information to solve problems. Some does provide instant problems like security. I mean, you don't want someone to break in your house, put a security system in. Um, I get that. But but in the in the broader sense, uh, it's community, it's social problems. And as we know right now, um, probably any sustainability or any smart project work on now, we got to bring in psychology into it all, social Support the whole thing, which we're seeing right now, 
uh, the pandemic has launched us into that. But I don't believe it was not there before. Just that because you would have seen it in India for sure. Yeah. Uh, the things you wouldn't have seen here, maybe that now it's forefront. So I think that uh, now, and I ask that because in the IBI world, again, big company does some really exciting things. And, you know, I see your name on pretty well everything we come across. Um, what's the focus? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I think one thing in particular that stems with me and, and I think with the group that I work with, it's being able to be dynamic. You know, actually, the pandemic really spoke to that was the space that you have available to you had to change drastically, right? We, I mean, one example I like is the, the cafe TO program or the active TO programs. You know, we, we actually are uh, forefront in the cafe TO program, creating those outdoor patios and extending them beyond the, the sort of typical space because we had the pandemic and we wanted to encourage sure. outdoor dining. So that, that dynamic nature of space is something that we're keen on. So we have a, a couple tools, one called Curb IQ. So the curb space is really evolving. We want to digitize the curb space, allow for cities to dynamically change their regulations. And I drove on the Danforth the other day and I saw, you know, it says you could park here for 15 minutes and pick up your lunch or whatever and move on and no, no fees. Well, we want to support that, you know, across North America with these tools like Curb IQ that allow for digitizing those those curb spaces and 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 changing these dynamic uh, regulations where they need to. So we actually have a contract with with uh, City of Barrie where we're doing a pilot with them. Oh, great! Well, I think regardless of even the curb IQ part, which of course we're heavily involved in the curbside and that, but the fact that you're actually making the downtown better. And like, if we can find a way to promote this and have this curbside, and that means more outdoor decks and more outdoor living, it promotes everything. It promotes everything, not just the, like I said, the technology starts it, but if you could influence that, like that's why they built all the patios downtown. Right. Now, of course we had to shut them down, but that's no one's fault. Point is that would not have happened. Um, And now it's never going away. It's just going to grow. Which is better for everybody, you exactly. know, the community. So, it all comes down to trust. It all comes down to getting people to work together. It all comes down to people breaking down the barriers between their various uh, bits of expertise. And and you guys sound like you're really well on your way to doing it. And this kind of thing is really sort of, you know, the word I don't think is insidious. Maybe uh, it's happening below the surface. You don't really see it until it finally gets implemented and people start realizing what's been done. Right. Right. That's a good, uh, good way to put it, Alan. And, and I think that's the problem. I think that uh, things like Sandbox, um, we have to get it out at the forefront so people understand what we want to do and why we're doing it. Do you want to get taxed tomorrow because now we got to build an extra hundred beds everywhere, hostel beds? No, but we'll accept it. We'll accept anything here, guy. Write me a ticket for talking too loud or walking the wrong way. I'll, I'll pay it. We're Canadian. But I mean, in all fact, though, um, the, the big problem is companies, Canadian successes, and I know I push that hard, Canada, um, techno, companies like IBI are not known like you think. Um, yeah. I'm just telling you guys. I mean, I know them because I'm in industry and, and whether, even if I don't like it, I'm going to come across them every day. But I think we have to get these companies out in front of people and start showing what we can do. 
uh, for the communities and the cities. And I think it's great that the IBI are one of those, uh, one of the biggest in the world right here. Thank you, Raul. This has been very interesting. I'm going to be watching a lot more closely now to see exactly <laughs> how these things pop up when, uh, you know, the, it's, the stuff is going on behind the scenes and then just all of a sudden manifests itself in public and we can start enjoying it and start seeing the benefits from it all. Yeah, I know. And thanks both of you for this time. It was great uh, to meet you both and, and have this conversation. And that's it for this edition of the Smart City Podcast. Thanks to Raul Mera of IBI Group for being our guest this time. We'll be back soon with another program featuring more smart people and their ideas for connecting us together through smart technologies. We're looking for your feedback. You can send everything and anything to feedback at thesmartcity.blog. You can check out our website, thesmartcity.blog, for past programs, as well as who and what else is coming up. The Smart City Podcast, brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Executive producer is Grant Furlane. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. Executive assistant is Andrea Crawford. I'm Alan Cross, and we'll see you next time. 